seminary online, and then I was, began preaching at this church. It was all set up for this. So one day I'm preaching at this church in Korea that's for expats and it's for Koreans that uh, speak English. And I'm preaching the sermon. I don't remember the text, but there were these two girls that I'd never seen before, like college-aged. And as I was preaching, I could just see from their face that they were like totally into the sermon. Like, like her, their mouths were wide open, their eyes were wide open. They, they were just they were jiving with all my great points that I was making, um, all my great illustrations. And I thought, man, if these girls were not Christians before they came in here, they are now. After seeing what happened to them, um, so after the service, I run into them and I, um, you know, ask, hey. You know, I want to talk to them, have to just be welcoming, have to kind of hear how great I am. And uh, so I introduce uh, myself to them, ask them their names, and their response, they kind of look at each other, they kind of laugh, they look uncomfortable, and they're like, oh, we, English, you know. So at that moment, it all became clear to me how conceited I was, how prideful I was, and also that these girls, they didn't understand anything that I was saying at all, and they were just being like sweet, polite, nice listeners, good listeners. Everything got flipped upside down for me in that moment. And what happened was everything that looked, it looked like something was happening on the inside, but once they opened their mouths, like the real situation, the reality of what was going on actually came to light. Um, and also my own pride and my own conceitedness also came to light as well. So Jesus tells a story here of two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And from the outside, the, the conclusion that you would draw was about these men is very different from what happens, what the conclusion you draw after you hear them speak and hear, see what's inside of them. Um, one of the great themes in Luke is you could call it like the great reversal. What we would expect to happen, how things appear on the outside, what's normal and everyday, the way that the world works, gets flipped upside down when Jesus comes, gets flipped upside down in God's coming kingdom. For example, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, which we read a little bit today for our call to worship, um, this song of Mary, when she's pregnant with Jesus, she meets Elizabeth, and this sets the whole theme. This is the very beginning of Luke. This sets the theme, whole theme for Luke, if you read Luke. And this is what she says in this, in this um, um, the Mary's, this is often called Mary's song or Magnificat. She says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So everything gets flipped upside down in God's kingdom. That's what's going on in our text as well, in our text in uh, this, this parable that Jesus tells. Um, he says at the very end of our text in verse 14, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So those that are mighty and those that are strong, those that are cool, those that are powerful, those that look good in the eyes of the world, God will, God will bring them down to dishonor. Meanwhile, those that are weak and those that are powerless, those that are uncool, those that are disdained in the eyes of the world, God's going to lift them up and exalt them in his kingdom. And if it's true that God exalts the humble, then there's three points in our text that we can see in response to that. If God exalts the humble, then there should be three responses from us, his people, at least three responses. If God exalts the humble, then here's our three points. We should let go of our righteousness we should humble ourselves, and we should show mercy. We should let go of our righteousness, we should humble ourselves, and we should show mercy. So our first point, because God humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble, we should let go of our righteousness. Look with me in verse 9. So um, Jesus here, he's speaking to this general crowd, 
right? But unlike other parables, Luke actually tells us who specifically Jesus is talking to in the crowd. He says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Jesus is speaking to them, and he chooses, instead of just telling them, hey, stop trusting in your righteousness. Instead of just saying this bluntly, he tells this parable. Parables, stories work differently than pointed um, statements to people. So let's consider the first half of this parable, the first part of this parable, starting in verse 10. And let's see what Jesus means when he says this. So it says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So our setting for this story that Jesus is telling is the temple in Jerusalem. Everyone would have been in his original audience would have been familiar with this setting. And in walks two men to the temple, and the first is a Pharisee. We'll talk about him for a few minutes. So the Pharisees were these conservative religious leaders in Israel at the time. And we have very, when we hear the word Pharisee, we often have very negative connotations when we hear that word Pharisee, uh, much to do with the way that many of them treated Jesus. Um, but that would not have been the connotation of the original audience. In fact, it's kind of hard to even come, I was trying to think of a parallel, it's hard to even, because we are, um, we are generally very suspicious of authority figures in America today, 21st century, much less, I mean, religious, religious authority figures. We are very skeptical and suspicious of them. So it's hard to have like a, find a parallel to our society today. But in this time and in this context, Pharisees were closer to actually, they were like the models of Jewish society. They were the ideal of Jewish society. They represented, that was the ideal life right there when you saw a Pharisee doing his thing, uh, walking down the street, living his everyday life, because they had these crazy standards that they lived up to. They, they knew their Bibles better than any of us here, maybe all put together, and they were disciplined, and they believed their Bibles as well, and they were popular, and they were respected. So when Jesus is telling a story and introduces this Pharisee, uh, they have no idea where this, where this story ends up. They have no idea where this is going. This is like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of ending for these people 2,000 years ago and where this guy ends up. So the Pharisee, he's like standing by himself, and he's about to pray. And on the outside, it looks like this pious, sweet moment, this private, sweet moment with this Pharisee. But then he opens his mouth, <laughs> and he prays like this is his prayer. Listen, this is his prayer. He says, literally, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Amen. That is a weird prayer, isn't it? It's a little bit weird. <laughs> it starts off well, right? He, he says, God, I thank you. And that's a good way to start a prayer, right? A little gratitude. That's a good way to start a prayer. But then it starts to get a little wonky and a little bit weird. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And still, you're like, okay, that could be a good thing. That could be like, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, kind of, pray, uh, th you know, thinking about other people. Um, like, I deserve the misery that other men experience. But that's not what he's saying. <laughs> he goes on to say he's thankful that he's not like other men, not like extortioners, not like the unjust, not like the adulterers, and not like, and you can imagine him just kind of looking around, not like that guy that tax collector. I'm so thankful I'm not him. We discover that he's not thankful that he's not in other men's miserable shoes. He's thankful that he's not that other miserable, immoral, shameful loser. That's what he's thankful for. So by the end of this prayer, you start to wonder, who exactly is he thanking here? 
It doesn't sound like he's thanking God. Because what he's doing is he's going this list. I've done this. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. And on top of this, he fasts twice a week. Now, fasting um, was God commanded Israel to feast a lot. They're commanded to fast one time a year. They have atonement. He does it twice a week. And on top of that, he's scrupulously giving away 10% of everything that he has. So if somebody offers him a piece of cake, he takes 10% out. I don't know what he does with it, but he takes 10% out and somehow sacrifices that to God. So this guy's like scrupulous, disciplined. And by the end of the prayer, who's getting all the honor in this prayer? Him. He's getting all the honor in this prayer. Now, notice this. All of the things that he talks about, they're all good things. These are all good things. But what the Pharisee is doing and what I find myself doing, and maybe you find yourself doing this as well, is looking at what we think are good works, our righteous deeds, and maybe they are objectively good things, but we're trusting in them. So these things make me worthy. This makes God favor me. This makes me better than other people. I know we've all got those. Man, when I was doing this last week, when I was going through this, man, there's so many places where I'm like, oh, I'm better than him. Oh, I'm better than her. We do this all the time. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But we say this thing that I do or this thing that I have or this thing that I have achieved, this atones for all the bad things that I've done or this evil sickness that I know resides inside of my heart. And the result for this uh, Pharisee is that he goes home at the end of the day, verse 14, which we'll get to in a, uh, later, but he goes home not right with God. He goes home. God rejects him. This Pharisee goes home rejected by God. God rejects him for all of his own righteousness. Now, right here, we have to ask this question. Um, what is it in ourselves? What is it maybe that you or I hold up to, hold up to God, hold up to ourselves? What are we tempted to hold up to God and to ourselves and to others that, that proves that I am right it proves that I'm good, that I'm worthy. We might be a little better at hiding it than the Pharisee here in the story, but it, and this might be something that's overtly religious. It could be something that's not so overtly religious. Um, have you ever thought about, for example, um, when you get criticized or when you feel really guilty or when you feel really hard on yourself or for some reason you're like, why do I even, why should I even exist? I have no reason to exist. What is it that your mind goes to that says, oh wait, no, I do have reason to exist. I am worthy. I am good. What is it that you, you gravitate to, to point to that thing and say, no, I'm worthy because of this thing. What makes you feel better when you feel bad? <laughs> this applies whether you say you follow Jesus or not, right? So for example, my success in my education, my success in my career, despite so many obstacles, I work so hard and here's where I am, here's what I've done, here's my title. Is that something that you're, that you're prone to put your worth in? Um, am I a good parent, right? Is, I think when kids are younger, you're like, this is my experience, you're like, oh, I'm a good parent, I'm better than other parents. And then when they get older, you think, oh, the success of your children becomes your worth. The success or the success or demise of your children, your whole existence uh, hinges on it. Um, maybe it's I haven't had sex outside of marriage. That makes me better than other people. Um, I recycle and I help my friends care for the earth and other people don't. And I'm better than them. Or I read the Bible a lot or I read the Bible every day or I 
really know a lot of stuff about theology and other people don't. I know more than other people. Or maybe I just feels good sometimes to think about some loser that you know in your family or your friend group and just meditate on how much they stink and how awesome I am compared to them. <laughs> Nobody's done that before, right? Uh, maybe you tell God this stuff. Maybe you tell yourself this stuff. Maybe this is a little pep talk that you give to yourself. Or maybe you low, just low-key let other people know this stuff somehow. <coughs> Facebook. I heard a pastor or someone a long time ago say this one time, like, he was like, what do you, like, the first 30 minutes in the morning, what, where does your mind go? When your mind is empty, where does your mind tend toward? And I put this into practice when I was in college. I put this into practice, and I remember being in the shower and being like, man, the last 15 minutes, I've been arguing with people in my head. I've been creating these um, people that I know in my head, having them say something, and then I just trounce their arguments and destroy them in my head. I I realized I've been doing this every morning for like months and months and months. And it was weird. I was like, I was doing this pep talk to myself, like, no, Will, you're okay. You're smart. You're worthy. You can make it out there. It was this weird, bizarre pep talk that I was giving to myself. Where does your mind go? When you, what what do you naturally meditate on when your guilt comes up? or your sense of worth gets questioned, or your mind is just empty. These are probably all good things, but Jesus says, God doesn't want your righteousness. God doesn't want your righteousness. And can we just like appreciate for a second how crazy this is, that God doesn't want your good deeds? God doesn't want your good deeds in order to give you um, his approval. He doesn't want these things. It's crazy. This is the great the reversal of the kingdom. This is crazy because every other religion, as far as I know, every other religion points you to achieve. Every other religion points you to says, do this and gain. Self-sacrifice and you will be redeemed. Discipline yourself. Work, you've got it within yourself to make yourself worthy. Work hard or at least try to be a good person and you can reach paradise. That is nowhere in the Bible and it's not from Jesus. You know Buddha's last words? This, you know Buddha's last words, supposedly, were strive, work hard, strive without ceasing. Those were Buddha's last words to the world. But Jesus tells us the complete opposite here. He says, let go of your righteousness. Don't try to be righteous on your own. Don't try to be righteous. Let go of your righteousness. You've got nothing. Your righteousness is a loss. Your righteousness, you have nothing here. You have nothing worth sacrificing to God to be redeemed. You've, not, you've got nothing that he wants. You've got nothing that he wants in terms of your own righteousness. Your self-discipline is infected with selfishness. And because your heart is bent toward yourself, no good deed you can do is worthy before God. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. There's nothing you can do to make God love you. Not because his standards are crazy high. His standards are perfect and good. But our standards are too low. And our standards are just completely perverted. Jesus says, humble yourself instead. Give up. Give up trusting in your own righteousness. Humble yourself. This is our second point. Because God exalts the humble, we should let go of our righteousness, and we should humble ourselves. There's another man in this parable besides the Pharisee, and this is the tax collector. Now, when you um, hear tax collector in the original, the original hearers, it would have been the complete opposite feeling than they would have had toward the Pharisee. Um, the first century Jewish culture, tax collectors, they were classified right along with murderers, um, adulterers, robbers, and prostitutes. You were allowed, for example, you, you could lie to a tax collector and you wouldn't be in trouble. They'd be like, hey, you can lie to a tax collector. He's not worth telling the truth to. And the reason why they were so despised was, first of all, 
they could, so they collected taxes, and then they could just say, you know, give me whatever on top of that, and you have to pay them, and they get to pocket that. But the real reason that they were so despised was, was because who are the Jewish tax collectors, these Jewish tax collectors, who are they working for? Who is my tax money going to? And who, if I refuse to pay my taxes, whose army is going to come knocking on my door to come get those taxes? The Roman Empire, right? The, that nation that is currently subjugating Ju the Israel, the Jewish nation. So these Jewish tax collectors are Roman collaborators. They're friends with the enemy, and they're getting paid to do it. And they get paid well. So tax collectors, what came to your mind, if you were a first century Jewish person, was that they are objectively untrustworthy, they're rich, they're opportunistic, they're parasitic, and they're traitors. And like with the Pharisee, it's kind of hard, bear with me for a second, it's hard to like figure out who is this in my life? Um, because we don't have tax collectors today. We don't have collaborators as such here. But tax collectors are any of those people that we deem pariahs, those people that we deem outside of the realm, outside of the sphere of redeemable. Um, so it's hard to recognize them because we don't see them, because we don't think that they're people. So, for example, I remember about 10 years ago, I was in, working in Korea, and this uh, British friend of mine, there were these riots that were happening in London. I had no idea what was going on. And I was like, hey, what's going on in, in London? Who are these people doing this? And what's the situation? He's like, oh, they're just a bunch of scum. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I was like, um, no, but I don't understand. Who are they? I don't understand what's going on. And he was like, oh, they're just a bunch of trash, a bunch of rubbish. And I was like, whoa, Jeff. Because <laughs> this is a guy that normally he would, you know, he's a love everybody kind of person. But when it came to London, his city and people that were, you know, threatening it, he got very worked up and people were pushed outside of the realm of human. Um, that sounds a bit like how the Pharisee and others might think of this tax collector. I think we all have people that we can, we are prone to write off, to treat with contempt. These are people that threaten our security, people that threaten our heritage, people that threaten our way of life or something that we hold dear. When people threaten that, we push them outside of the realm of the human or the redeemable. Another way to ask this question is, who does not deserve your respect? Who does not deserve your attention and respect? Um, I was talking with a neighbor a couple weeks ago, and she was, telling, she was in my driveway, and uh, she was telling me about how she got her first ponies. And she said that she got them from some people that weren't worth a weed. And she pointed to my lawn as she said this, which kind of hurt my feelings later, thinking back on it. Um, why? But I asked her, why are they not worth a weed? And she said, because they neglected and treated the ponies that she got from them really badly before she bought them. So for her, people that neglect animals, people that treat animals badly, they're outside of the realm of the redeemable. They're like tax collectors. Um, all this is to say there's someone, there's some group in your life that you're tempted to put into this category of scum. Um, I, they don't deserve my respect, my attention. They don't deserve my ear. Um, they're rubbish. They're scum. They're Trump supporters. They're Biden supporters. <laughs> they're anti-vax people. They're first in line for the vax people. Racists, you know, child molesters, terrorists, policemen, looters, people that throw trash out of their cars. This one for me. Um, try to imagine that person as this tax collector, if you can, in place of them. So this tax collector, or whoever resonated with you from that list or somebody else, um, they come to the temple. 
And we're told that he stands far off, like he couldn't even look up to God. He couldn't even face God. And he beat his chest, beat his breast, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice, this is crazy. This guy's got nothing to offer to God. He's got nothing, no list. He doesn't come with a list. He's got no deeds. He's got no righteousness at all, nothing. In fact, he's, not only is he not offering to anything to God, he's actually asking for something from God on top of all this. Um, he's coming to God, and who knows why he's coming, why he's there. It could be all that traitoring stuff that he's been doing. Um, maybe he cheated on his wife. Maybe he's a bad dad. Maybe he stole office supplies, and it really hit him. Whatever it is, he's realized that he is a sinner, and his guilt has overwhelmed him. The rationale for him to continue to exist has been questioned. He knows that God's wrath is on its way toward him for what he's done, who he is. And he owes God, but he doesn't give God anything. He doesn't offer God anything. He doesn't promise God anything. He doesn't, there's no resolutions coming out of his life to be, a, of his mouth to be a better person. He's, he knows that realistically, he realizes that he has nothing to give to God, nothing that God wants. Instead, he asks for something. He asks for mercy. On top of everything else, he asks God for mercy. That big debt that God is holding for this man, that this man's racked up, this man, as far as we know, he's made no resolution to change, no repentance, no promises. This man's asking God to take care of that debt for him that he has incurred. Be merciful to me. Now, a couple of verses later in this chapter, Jesus is coming into Jericho, and there's this blind man. His name is Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus is, is blind, I just mentioned, and he calls out to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, son of David, he says something similar, have mercy on me. But the words in the Greek for have mercy, you can kind of figure it out just in the English, but it helps out of the Greek there. So the words have mercy when Bartimaeus says it is different than the tax collector. When Bartimaeus says have mercy, he's, he's meaning it in this way. Um, he's asking for physical help and for God to help his physical um, uh, issues that he's having, that kind of mercy. But when the tax collector cries out for mercy, he's saying this literally in Greek. It says, God, be propitiated to me, a sinner. Now, if you know what pr propitiation, we never use this word. If you know what this word means, you're a weirdo. You shouldn't know what this word means. We never use this word. But propitiation is a big word, and it, that means, let me, let me give an example of what this, propitiation, if, this is almost heretical, it's probably heretical, I'm about to say, okay, but imagine that I'm like really angry, right, at somebody else, and instead of punching that person, I punch a punching bag and let all of my anger out on that punching bag until I am appeased and I'm uh, satiated and my anger's gone. That's what propitiation looks like. It's wrath being poured out on another. So that punching bag was my propitiation, was the propitiation. Now, this doesn't actually work. I've tried it. It doesn't work. I've read journal articles about it. It does not work, so don't ever try it. Um, there's actually a better example that comes from the Bible, and it was what happened symbolically in the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. We read about one from Leviticus a few minutes ago. Instead of God pouring out his wrath on individuals, Instead of God pouring out his wrath on the nation of Israel when they absolutely deserved it, God would pour out his wrath on these sacrificial animals, on lambs and goats and sheep, and his wrath would be poured out on them symbolically so that the wrath would no longer come to me. So, the tax, so back to the tax collector. The tax collector is saying this. Here's what he's saying to God. He's saying, God, 
satisfy the wrath that I deserve for what I've done on someone else. This is what he's asking God in that moment. This is what he's asking on top of everything else. He's saying, God, my only hope here, my only hope is if you take care of me because I can't. I've got no righteousness you would ever be able to accept in the first place. And on top of this, I have nothing to make it up to you. He's asking God, God, you do all the work. (laughs) You do all the work to help me out because I'm in a terrible situation and I need you to do every ounce of this work for me because I got nothing. And look at verse 14. This is crazy. Look at verse 14. Because of such an outrageous request, this tax collector went home justified. He went home right with God. The wrath was poured out somewhere else. While the Pharisee, with all his great deeds, went home with God's wrath still on him. Isn't that crazy? Now, I often wonder, like, when Jesus was telling this story, what's going on when Jesus tells stories like this? Tells stories about um, people like the tax collector having their sins uh, forgiven and and the wrath of God poured out somewhere else. What is Jesus thinking and feeling when he talks about these things? Because Jesus isn't, this isn't like a thought experiment for Jesus. Um, He's not a neutral third party in what he's talking about. In fact, Jesus is talking about himself. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice. He's the third character in this parable that makes it work. The wrath of God is averted from tax collectors onto himself when he died on the cross. The tax collector's sins were punished. The, the guilt for his sins was punished in him, in Jesus, when he died on the cross. And everything you need to be right with God was accomplished. He did all the work for you. And all we do is we receive. Strive without ceasing, right? That's what Buddha's last words were to us. Do you remember what Jesus' last words were before he died? It is finished, right? It's finished. Jesus took the punishment for your sins on the cross, and when he was done with that, what did he yell out for for all of us to hear? It is finished. I've done it. I've accomplished it. There's nothing to strive for. Jesus said it's finished. And all we do in response is we just receive. We trust him. Yes, I trust you. I receive what you've done. We give up our own righteousness, and we rest upon him alone for salvation. There's no righteousness I have to point to. It's all him. This is the offer of the gospel. And this leads us, if this is true, then this leads us to our third point. Because God exalts the humble, we should be merciful. Luke tells us in the intro to this, this is kind of the whole point, this is where he's going, that we should not treat others with contempt, but instead we show mercy. According to Luke, one of the main points, if not the main point of this parable is that if this is all true that we've just been talking about, then there's no room, there's no room for us to treat others with contempt. Instead, we should be merciful to others, generous with others. I mean, generous in our thoughts, generous in the way that we treat them, no matter what, you know, whatever kind of um, weakness we see in them, moral weakness. You know, if there's one kind of person, I think we can all get behind in uh, you know, being contemptuous toward. <laughs> it's probably self-righteous types like this Pharisee, right? Nobody likes this people like this. <laughs> Nobody likes them. Nobody likes these people, right? But Jesus does. Jesus even loves this Pharisee. He's telling this story to people like this Pharisee because he doesn't want them to go home not justified. He wants the self-righteous people. He wants them too. 
He loves tax collectors. He loves the rubbish of the world. And he loves self-righteous people too. He's saying, look at your hearts, self-righteous people. Look what you're trusting in and give up your righteousness. I'm here with the real righteousness that you need. Let's see, how, how does this apply in how we, as believers, as Christians, how we treat unbelievers and how we treat our own brothers and sisters? So two final application points here. One thing that this parable teaches us is that there is no, you know, if there's no righteousness in us that we can muster up in order to make ourselves right with God, then what? What does this mean in our relationships with those that don't trust Jesus yet, whether they're tax collector types or they're Pharisee types? It means that our goals and our desires, so to speak, with, you know, with our unbelieving friends and family members and the world, is not to make them good people. There's, there's part of me that wants my non-Christian friends and family members to stop sinning when I see all the, the havoc it causes in their life. The self-righteous part of me also wants to tell them what to do. Um, and there may be some good motives there. Maybe not. There may be a little bit. But often I want to say stuff like this to my non-Christian friends and family. I want to say, stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. I want to say, stop being legalistic about these issues. Stop being self-righteous. Stop doing drugs. Get your life together, man. That's what I want to say to my non-Christian friends and family. But what, if, what, what good would that do if I got my way? If I got my way, they would end up good, righteous, cleaned up people that at the end of the day go home not justified. They would be good, cleaned up people that still have the wrath of God on them. They would not be right with God. Our mission as God's people is not to make good, upright, moral people that are ultimately made in my image, because that's what's going to happen. And probably, I don't know, I bet a lot of our non-Christian friends would listen to us a lot more if we stopped trying to make them good people. And what if we just introduced them to Jesus, the propitiation for their sin? Instead of winning them to our very righteous political views or more moral life, ask them what they think about Jesus. Meditate on Jesus together. Get to a place in y'all's relationship where you can talk about Jesus and ask them what they think about Jesus. And get the spotlight on him and then let the Holy Spirit do his job. He's the one that changes hearts, not me. I can't change anybody's heart. Tax collectors and Pharisees need Jesus, not their own righteousness. Now, how about our brothers and sisters in the church? This tax collector, he's got a lot of repenting to do, this tax collector. Um, in fact, it's going to take him his whole life long, and he's still not going to be done repenting, right? We're not going to be perfect until we die or Jesus returns. Um, and what would the Pharisee say and think about someone like this? This guy whose life is still a wreck. It's going to be a wreck for a long time. We don't even know why he came. He could have come, like I said, he could have come because he realized he was stealing office supplies. Maybe he's, the traitoring thing has never entered his mind, right? He's got, a lot, he's got his whole life of repentance to do. How are we to treat others, brothers and sisters, who have trusted in Jesus and trusted in his propitiation, but their life is still a complete mess? This tax collector, he's going to need brothers and sisters to not treat him with contempt, but to be merciful to him and generous with him and kind with him and forgiving with him and gentle and patient with him. If you expect, or if you expect like someone like him or even yourself, if you expect them to be immediately perfect once we become Christians, you're living in a different universe. This is not anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> repentance is your whole life long. That was Martin Luther. That was his first of the 95 theses was that repentance is the whole of our life. 
We all have our own complicated, heartbreaking stories that God has beautifully broken into. This tax collector has one. I know it's a story, but the tax collector has one. The Pharisee has one. Everyone here has one. And God has not made us perfect yet, but he's making us perfect. And when those places get exposed, where a brother or sister is thinking like a Pharisee or living like a tax collector, God still loves them. God is patient with them. God is merciful with them. He bears with them. Like Galatians 6.1, he bears with them, bears their burdens. And he saved us to bear. He saved you to bear with them too. So we can't, there's no place for us to be contemptuous. If Jesus died as a substitute, if, if, my, if my way into Christianity was, I have no righteousness, I'm an absolute wreck, and I need Jesus' righteousness, if that's the way into Christianity, how can we tr- possibly treat others with contempt once we're there? I've got no hill to stand on to look down on other people. This CBC, this week, let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us places where we're trusting in our own righteousness, where we're treating others with contempt, and we're not resting in this finished, final sacrifice of Jesus for sinners. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son to be the propitiation for bad people. And we pray you'd open our eyes this week to places where we are being contemptuous with others because we're trusting in our own righteousness. And we pray that you would free us to love you, serve you, and love and serve each other in this world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.